morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to take it up and to turn with me to the book of Colossians. If you are visiting with us this morning, then you'll want to know that we uh, find our, you find us in the beginning of a series, actually the second week of a series uh, called Unparalleled, and um, it's a study through the book of Colossians, through the book of Colossians. If you don't have a Bible or you don't have a mobile device where you can uh, search for a Bible, you can use the Bible in the pew back in front of you, and you can find this reading on page 953 in that Bible. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, today, in our studies in Colossians, it'll actually take us to, um, the title of the sermon would be Unparalleled Prayer. It's actually, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church in Colossae, and um, he's, he's, he's really thanking God for them and then praying for them. And so what we get is a study. We're going to be thinking a little bit about prayer this morning. But beforehand, then I want to, if you're new to church, you're new to uh, spiritual things, or you're just new to this church, there's a couple of just sort of foundational things that I would love to just share with you. Just three things that we believe about prayer. Um, we just, just three pretty basic foundational things that we as a church family practice and believe about prayer itself. Um, the first is this. We actually believe that prayer is communication with God. That when we pray, we're not, it's not just sort of some random exercise. It's not sort of cleansing of our minds. It's not just the cleansing of our hearts. That we're not just talking into thin air, but we're actually communicating with a living and active God who wants to hear from us and is actively involved and engaged in our lives. And so we're talking with him. We're having communication with God. That's the first thing. We actually believe that God hears us and listens to our prayers. The second is this. We believe that prayer is powerful. We believe that prayer is powerful. In the book of James, it tells us that the prayer of a righteous person or righteous people is powerful and effective. We believe that prayer matters, that it's an important part of spirituality and Christian foundation as we pray and communicate with God. And thirdly is this that prayer is an act of dependence upon God. That prayer is an act of dependence upon God. That we pray, when we pray, we are reminded that we don't have all our stuff together. When we pray, the reason we pray is in order to say that I cannot do it alone, I cannot go it alone, and I need God. And we're praying is an act of dependence upon the one who is all-powerful, the one who is all-knowing, and it's admitting that I am not all-powerful, that I am not all-knowing, and so therefore we come in dependence upon him in prayer. Three just really foundational things that we believe about prayer. So with that in our back pocket, let us now go then to Colossians chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 3 through 14 this morning. Let me... Just read them, follow along as you're able. Paul writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in, Je in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, 
who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us about your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing him and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Maybe just a brief word of prayer. Fathers, we now turn to your word. We ask that you will be our teacher and our helper and our guide. We come in dependence upon you, asking that your spirit will open our eyes in order that we may see you more clearly this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So Paul, the apostle, is writing this letter, and he begins, of course, last week we talked about the introduction, and then he continues on, and he gives a thanksgiving for this church. He gives a thanksgiving for the church. He says in verse 3, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So he prays for them, and when he prays for them, he gives thanks for them. Now imagine if you were this church, right? You're a church that is relatively new. You're a church that is in a small, a relatively small city. Not a whole lot going on. Not terribly significant in the ways of the things going on around them. And yet the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes you a letter. And in the letter, what he says to you is he says, I want you to know I've been praying for you. And when I pray for you, I thank God for you. I mean, imagine what that must have been like for those people. The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. He's praying for us. Not only is he praying for us, but he's thankful for us. How amazing that must have been for them to be on the receiving end of such, such, a, 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 such an, a notification that there it is, the Apostle Paul, praying for them and thankful for them. It must have been amazing to them. And I wonder, before we just kind of breeze past this as we may have a tendency to do, I just want to pause for a moment and just, when was the last time that you have ever said that to someone? I just want you to know that I'm thankful for you. I've been thanking God for you. When was the last time that someone ever said that to you? Or you've been on the receiving end of someone saying, I just want you to know how thankful I am. I am thankful to God for you. I'm thankful that God made you and put you in my life. What a wonderful thing to have said about you. And before we move along, and I want you to know that I am thankful to God for you and that I routinely in my prayers thank God for this church and your faces fill my mind and the realities of the ministry of our church for which I'm deeply grateful. 
for when I hear the stories of widows who come to our church because God has blessed us with a wonderful company of women who care for one another's needs as widows. And then what a great encouragement it is to my heart and it ought to be for yours. When I hear of the ways in which there are people that are continually giving of their time in order that they may be able to share the message of Jesus Christ with children and some of your grandchildren with the high school students and middle school students. And they come and do crazy things in order that somehow these kids may fall in love with Jesus. I'm thankful. When last weekend I have an opportunity to spend 24 hours away at a cabin with our elder team and I'm reminded of the deep humility and great dependence and trust that those men have in Jesus Christ and the care that they have for you as a church, I'm deeply grateful. And I thank God for you. For those who are new to our church over these last, maybe even for your first time, that you would come and that you would spend an hour worshiping with Jesus gives me great encouragement and I am deeply thankful. Even if you never come again, know that I am thankful that you are here and that you are engaged in the worship and the study of the word of God. I'm thankful. And for those of you who have been here now for decades and faithfully served our church with your giving and with your prayers and with your time and your sweat and your blood and your tears that you've given, know that I'm deeply grateful and thankful to God for you. It's been a couple weeks ago now when my, my family and I were in Ohio visiting our family over the holidays. And some of you may remember a couple of years ago, my father-in-law went through some pretty significant surgeries and you were so gracious in your praying and our prayer shawl ministry had delivered a, a prayer shawl to him. Well, when I was back in Ohio over the holidays, then I was in his bedroom and then he made it a point to show me that he showed me the prayer shawl that he still keeps with him. He puts it on his bed every single day because he's reminded that you're praying for him. And I'm thankful that we have a church who would care so deeply for some man that they've hardly ever met that they would pray. This is not a perfect place. It's not a perfect church. I am far from a perfect pastor. Not that I needed to say that. You knew that. But I thank God for you. And know that I pray for you often. It's natural for the Colossians then to say, why is it that Paul would be thankful for them? And thankfully, Paul doesn't leave them. They leave that into question. He goes on to say, He's thankful for them and he prays in thanksgiving because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from hope stored up in you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. So Paul thanks them. The reason he is thankful to God for them is because they heard the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they believed it, right? And then he says, I'm thankful because there's this, uh, they, because they've had the opportunity to experience what would be a, a, a Christian triad, uh, as it might be, right? The triad of faith and love and hope. 
in Paul's letters, this is a common thing that you will find. It's a common theme. So you can find it in Jesus' teaching, sort of uh, not explicitly, but more implicitly. But in Paul, what you'll find in his writings and in his letters, that there is this triad of Christian experience of faith and love and hope. Sometimes in different orders, and yet all still very present. And here it is now that he says, I'm thankful to God for you because in your church, you've experienced the Christian triad of faith and love and hope. So what is faith? What, why is he thankful to God for this? Well, faith, faith is something that's really important to people of uh, Christians. I think that one of the, the best definitions, I'll leave it to the Bible, the, the writer of Hebrews says this about faith. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is confidence in in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. There is an assurance and a confidence that comes from Christian faith. That is, the faith is, the confidence in the assurance is rests on the one in whom we put our faith. It's the object of our faith. So he says, this is the assurance that we have, that Christian faith is not some sort of wishful thinking that is divorced from reason. But no, rather it is Faith is confidence and assurance in what we do not see. You say, well, that's, that, I don't know, I'm not terribly reassured by your definition of faith. Okay, but take it this way. We all live by faith every single day. This evening, I'll find my way to the, to the, to the airport and I will get on a plane. And I, in an act of faith, I will entrust my life to a pilot and a co-pilot, I hope. And I, I don't know these men or women or whoever they are. I've not gone and seen their training. I've not looked at their credentials. And yet, there I go, boarding on a plane. And there it goes, into the air. And Lord willing, it will rise and it will come down and we'll all be in one piece. It's an act of faith. I've not, I haven't checked the mechanics. I haven't checked the, and even if I did, what good would I be? I stare at a bunch of stuff and go, there it is. Because there's an act of faith. Put another way. Some of you will leave here and you will decide that you want to go to a restaurant for lunch. And you decide that you say, we're going to be adventurous on this particular Sunday and we're going to go to a restaurant that we've never been to. And you will walk into the restaurant and after a little bit of a wait, you'll find yourself to a table and there you will order some food. And my hope for you on this wonderful Sunday is that it's lovely food and you enjoy it. But you're entrusting yourself to a chef who has made food, a chef that you probably have not met and a kitchen that you have probably not seen, and yet you will eat the food. And all being well, you will trust that the food has been well prepared, that the food has been cooked, and you will, you will trust that it will taste the way of your liking. And if not, you'll send it back and get something else. You trust that when you leave, you will be satisfied, and you will be healthy, and you will be thankful that you went to the restaurant. Unless, of course, it's McDonald's, and then you're on, you're on your own. You just, you, know, you, you just know you're taking your life into your hands when you go in there. And that's all right. You, you know it. It's, you know, it's a risk-reward. That's all. It's cool. I'm not, I like McDonald's. I was there yesterday. I mean, I'm just saying. So slam. I'm saying we live lives of faith. And the issue is not whether we're people of faith or not. All of us are. The question is the object of our faith. And we believe because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that, that the object of our faith is worthy. And so, therefore, we have confidence in our hope and we have an assurance of faith in what we have not seen. And yet, because of what we read in the word, we have faith. And he says, I'm thanking God for you because you 
when you were presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ, where you met that message with faith, and I'm thankful, he says. And I'm thankful for your love. Your love for the saints, your love for the brothers, your love for Christians. That's what he says. I'm thankful for the second part of the triad, which is love. That faith in Jesus, who is unseen, reveals itself in love for all of God's people. So when someone receives the message of Jesus Christ, when they become a Christian, it is an act of faith, and it is something that is unseen. Then how do we, how do we know? Because then they begin to have a love for the other Christians. There is a love. There is a supernatural love that comes when you express faith. When you come to faith in Christ, you begin to have a love that is displayed for other Christians. And there is a bond that is there, and it is a spiritual bond. And I suggest to you, in some ways, it is a miraculous bond of what he does. But there we are to love one another. And he says, I have seen, I have this seen, this, or I've heard that this faith that is unseen has actually begun to show itself in love for one another, for the brothers. So there is this faith that is showing itself in love. Love means that Christians are to serve one another. Love means that Christians are to bear with one another. Love means that we are to be bonded together for the cause of Jesus together. So there is faith and there is love. And he says, thirdly, there is hope. There is hope. The faith and love, he says, that springs from hope, the hope stored up in heaven, stored up for you in heaven, and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. Their faith and love are rooted in their hope that they heard in the gospel. They have confident faith. They have an active love because they have a real hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the person and work of Jesus. They believe that Jesus himself was God in flesh, that God took on the form of human flesh, that Jesus lived the perfect sinless life, that Jesus died the sacrificial death on the cross, that Jesus rose again on the third day. And now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and is interceding for those who are his, for his church. And that Jesus will one day return and he will make all things new. And so there is this triad of faith and love and hope and they interact with one another and they, in, they, they inform one another. Christian hope is not the way we usually use the word hope, right? You, you know this. Christian, Christian hope is not like we hope that the weather will be nice tomorrow. It's not that type of hope. No, Christian hope, the concept of Christian hope is a confident expectation or Better put, in one of the commentators that I was reading this week, William Hendrickson, Christian hope is a fervent yearning, confident expectation, and a patient waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. A full Christ-centered assurance that these promises will indeed be realized. It is a living and a sanctifying force. Christian hope he says, it is a living and sanctifying force. That this is the hope of, of the Christian. 
that we are those who have a confident expectation and that we can go through life knowing that this, there is this living and sanctifying hope that is drawing us, that is wooing us, that is strengthening us. It is the hope of Christ, of all that he has done for us, and that one day he will come back and he will make all things new. And this is the hope. And should not this hope of glory, should not this hope of glory, a part of which we have been able to see through, through a glass dimly, as it were, strengthen the faith of those people in the very object of the one who has given us faith? Should this glory, should this hope not us help us love Jesus all the more? And should our hope not enhance our love for those with whom we are going to spend eternity? And should our hope not also just amaze us that we will be in the great company of all of those great saints in the past who have been trusting Jesus and live lives for Jesus. And if he tarries, all of those who will, will, be, will follow us, that we will spend eternity with all of God's people, worshiping and praising God. This is the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. This is the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. And Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, will I not come back and take you to be with me where I am? That you have a real hope that is stored up for you in heaven. You have a real hope and the realization of our hope stored up for us ought to inspire worship in our hearts. It ought to entrance the hearts of the believers. And we greet, when we greet this hope, the Christian hope that we have with faith, then it ought to give, it ought to, then our faith ought to be strengthened in the very giver of the hope. And our love for all of the children ought to be enlarged and intensified. This is the triad, the work of faith and love and hope. And he continues on. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Just like the gospel came to Colossae and was bearing fruit, the Apostle Paul says, just like it came into your life, it is also spreading all throughout the world. This power, by implication, he's saying, do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember, church, when the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ came into your life? Do you remember the way that it turned your life upside down? He says, do you remember when that happened in your life? It's still happening. And why would you add anything to it? Why would you need to supplement? Because that was the danger in the church. They were bringing traditions from the Jewish traditions. They were bringing superior knowledge from the Gentiles and from the Greeks. And yet he's saying, don't you remember the power of the gospel when it came down into your life? Don't you remember when, when you realized yourself to be a savior, when you realized that you were separated from God and that the only way that you could be joined to God was through Jesus Christ? Don't you remember when he came down into your life? Don't you remember when he turned everything upside down in the city of Colossae because of this gospel? 
gospel message. Don't you remember that power? That same power is going all throughout the world. That same power, that same gospel is going from region to region. It's going from life to life, and it is changing the world. That power, that gospel is still at work. So why would you want to add a thing to it? Why would you want to do anything with it? Except proclaim it. Except worship the very author of it. That's what he's saying. And I wonder if you need a reminder this morning that this power, this gospel is still moving throughout the world. I wonder if you've forgotten. I wonder if you've kind of gone, not you've forgotten about Jesus, but you just forgot the power that you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've gotten too busy with all the other things of life. Not too busy for Jesus. You still come to church. You still do that. But have you realized... This morning, do you need a reminder of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That we have a team of, of our people who are in Honduras because of the, they believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is still going from country to country, region to region, and changing the world and turning people's lives upside down. That it's growing and bearing fruit throughout the world. It's growing and bearing fruit here in Maple Grove. I have to share with you, I had a, I had a wonderful lunch this within the last couple of weeks, I can't remember exactly. It was a friend of mine and we sat across the table from one another and, he, and we were talking about the different things and, and the schools, our kids are similar ages and we were talking about fighting that's happened in the schools and racism and different things like that. And you know, trying to, the, the challenges of making sort of normal kids, um, raising them. And then I had the opportunity to share with him. I said, well, yeah, the, the, of course, is he's, he was talking about how they're trying to have these sort of conversations with their children. And I said, oh, well, we talk about the fact that every person is made in the image of God. And so therefore are worthy of dignity and respect that, that Jesus came and died in order that they might be able to know. And so there, and, and I was struck by how striking it was for him. How radical this message is. How, how the, how, and, and also the foundation from which I was able to be able to articulate why I believe what I believe and why I do what I do. You can believe it, you can disregard it this morning, but friends, understand that from the foundation of God who is the giver of life and from the, the reality of what Christ has done, out of that space gives you a confidence and assurance to go through life, gives you reasons to be moral and have ethical choices. Friends, I don't know what you're leaning on in order to make those choices, except for just your own thinking, except your own reasoning. For me, it is the revelation of Almighty God in His Word. And I, can, I, I encourage you to consider these things. And it is this powerful gospel of Jesus Christ that is changing minds and lives and hearts. Well, that's the thanksgiving. Uh, and then he goes into prayer, and, and we have to hustle, I'll hustle, I'll get us through. The prayer. I did tell you it was going to be about prayer, and apparently I was more on Thanksgiving than prayer, but let us get to the prayer part. Verse 9, he goes on and says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you, and we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will and with all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Now, in this passage, we get unique insight into the Apostle Paul's prayer life. And I, I want you to be challenged by it if we, if, if, if we move through this quickly. Because I'm challenged by it. And I'm challenged by it in this way, that I'm a lousy prayer. 
I don't mean that I'm, I don't pray. I don't mean that I don't pray often. What I mean is when I look at how he prays, well, I have a tendency to be, um, to be, you know, to pray about the most immediate things, about the material things, and kind of make a list, and about the sick people, and about these, this and that, and, and about I, what I really want to have happen, like I really hope, uh, anyway, whatever. You know, the same things you pray about. But none of that's here. It's not here in Paul's prayer. And, I, and the question I said is, I thought was, what if, what if I actually prayed like Paul prays? What if our church prayed for each other the way that Paul prays for this church? Well, let's look at it quickly. He says, we continually ask God. So this is what he's praying. I, I pray for you. And this is what I'm doing. I'm asking God to fill you with knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. He says, let me tell you what I'm doing. I want to pray for you, and this is what I'm praying. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through the wisdom and knowledge that the Spirit gives. This is how he starts off. Now, I've never prayed. I mean, I prayed that someone might know the will of God. Yeah, okay. But like the way in which he goes about this is this is what I'm, here's where I'm going to start. I'm going to start that you may, I want you to know the will of God for your life. That's what I'm praying for you. And I want you to know it in the wisdom and knowledge that God will give you. That's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you have this, that you will have wisdom and knowledge and that the very spirit, why? He goes into verse 10. So that you may live a life that is worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. I want you to know the will of God. I want you to have the knowledge and the wisdom of God that the very Spirit of God will give you because I want you to live a life that is pleasing to God. That's what he's praying for this church. So he's praying for these people, that they would please God. He's not praying that they would have a comfortable, well-healed life. He's not praying that they would have their best life now. He's not praying. What is he praying? I want you, the greatest passion, he says, that I have is that you may live a life that is pleasing to God, that you will know the will of God. And that's what he's praying for them. The starting point of his prayer is God. The power of his prayer is dependence upon God. So what does it mean to live a life that is full of the wisdom and knowledge that the Spirit of God gives and to have a life that is pleasing and honoring to God? He gives us a few things. He's praying that their lives would be bearing fruit in every good work. He's praying that their lives would bear fruit. That means a couple things. One, it means that they would be growing in the fruit of the Spirit. He's praying that they would be bearing fruit in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That for every Christian, he's saying that you would be growing in your experience of the fruit of the Spirit that you would be growing in these things. He also, it also means that there would be profitability for their life. It means that they wouldn't be lazy, that they would be diligent in their effort. Proverbs 12, 24 says, Diligent hands will rule, but lazy ends will, uh, laziness ends in forced labor. Laziness is not the life that, God, that pleases God, but rather a life that is diligent and fruitful. So he's praying that they will be fruitful in their own spirit, there will be the fruit of the spirit and fruitfulness in their life. That they will be fruitful, they will be active. What does it mean to be a life, to live a life that is worthy of the Lord? It means that they will bear fruit. What is the second bit? He says that they will be growing in the knowledge of God. A life that pleases God is a life that is growing in understanding of who God is. 
Sometimes I understand that it can be a little boring to come and listen to a guy like me do what I'm doing now. Sometimes you say, yeah, I've heard it all before. I've been doing this for a long time. And maybe I'm just going to bag off and take this Sunday off. I understand. But know this. You can never mind the depths of Almighty God. He's other. You will never be able to mind. I don't care how many Bible verses you have memorized, and you should memorize Bible verses, but you will never be able to mind the depths of the richness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You never will. And so we must always continue to be growing in the knowledge of God. And his prayer is that these people would not stop, that they wouldn't quit, that they wouldn't end up finding themselves in some sort of meadow on a bypath meadow on the way, but rather they would stay continuing to grow in the knowledge of God. It is a life that pleases God, he says, when they bear fruit. It is a life that, when they, when they are grow, that pleases God when they are growing in their knowledge of God. Thirdly, he says, in being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Paul prays that the Colossians may be strengthened with all power, that they may be strengthened by God's power. For what? Why? That they may have endurance and patience. I wonder if any of you are here this morning in need of endurance and patience. Any? Like me? Maybe because your boss is difficult or because your job isn't what you want it to be or because your body isn't healing like the doctor says your body should, or your cough won't go away like mine won't go away, and I need endurance and patience because I went to the doctor because that's what you're supposed to do, which I don't usually do, but I decided I don't have time to be sick, so I'm going to go to the doctor, and I go to the doctor, and the doctor says, yeah, you're sick. Yeah, I know that. I didn't need to come to learn, but but then he says, well, yeah, sorry, you just got to wait it out, so I'm waiting it out, but it won't stink and go away, and I need endurance, and I need patience. This cough... Or maybe you need patience and endurance because your parents are unfair or because your brother is mean or because a whole variety of things. But how many of us have prayed for patient endurance that's given by the very spirit and power of God? I haven't. I confess I hadn't until I, till I read this and then I go, what, what the heck am I doing? Why am I not praying for this stuff? Because apparently he gives it if we pray it. Patient endurance. Paul is praying for this church. What a wonderful resource we have. And what an amazing power source that we so seldom tap into. Because we're all praying about the, the, the tangential stuff of life. Instead of the, the, the transforming power of God to come and give us patience and endurance that we require. Well, drawing to a close, he says... And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. And for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Life that is pleasing to God is one that gives joyful thanks. It's not dependent upon the circumstances. It's not because of the, the stuff of life that they give joyful thanks. No, he says that the Colossians are to give joyful thanks, giving to their father because they get to join in the inheritance of God. Because they have been rescued from 
the rule of darkness, because they've been brought into the kingdom of the son that he loves, because they have been redeemed and because they have been forgiven. And so therefore they are to go about life giving joyful thanksgiving to God. And we should be those who go through our lives giving joyful thanksgiving to our heavenly father. Yeah, last night, we, so yesterday we go to the store because we had to get a new vacuum cleaner because we just bought a new vacuum cleaner, but it didn't work right. So we had to turn it, return it back and get a new vacuum cleaner. And so we got the new vacuum cleaner. And so then our house was in dreadful need of a vacuuming. And so there I was vacuuming. And then apparently you're not supposed to go over the rug. My wife informed me because the rug gets into the thing and the, the spinny thing with the brush. That's the technical term for it. Um, this, the spinny thing would stop spinning. And I just about lost my mind. I just about, I just about lost. It's a brand new stinking thing. And I'm like, what? I'm like, my, my wife, I'm about to lose it. This is, about, I'm about, this is going to be it. Like, I'm going to get fired because I'm about to lose it. That's what was going to happen. And, and, then, and, and so then, <laughs> here's a curse of being a preacher. The sermon starts popping into my head. And I'm like, mm, right? And I'm, I'm ticked off because I got this stinking broken thing. And it, and then I'm like, give joyful thanksgiving to the Father. I'm... <laughs> and so I rebuked myself right there. And then it started working again. <laughs> mm. See, it works, people. We pray, it works. It doesn't always work that way, but it did last night for me, and I'm thankful because now my carpet is clean. We give joyful thanks, not because the carpet is clean and not because of the vacuum cleaner that it was working, which I'm so thankful, but because I have been rescued from the reign of darkness that once ruled over my life but does not anymore because I've been brought into the kingdom of the light of the son that he loves and because I have been redeemed and because my sins are forgiven. And so therefore, if my vacuum cleaner was broken and I had to return it again, fine, but I'm a child of God. And so therefore, I ought to always give joyful thanks and may we allow the apostle Paul in his prayer to inform our praying that we may be praying for the deeper richer spiritual life of ourselves of our children of our family and of our church let us pray together father thank you for Paul and thank you for his love for you and for all of the churches and all of the Christians May we allow his words to inform our thinking and our living. None of us has this right, but may we be those who give thanks because of your goodness and kindness towards us. Thank you for your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.